welcome back to our podcast, Critical Conversations. Our topic today is related to organ donation. And our first speaker is Professor Ignacio Martin Loches, Clinical Lead for Organ Donation with the Dublin Midlands Group and Consultant Intensivist here in our ICU. Hi, everyone. Uh, I'm very happy to participate in this uh, podcast. Uh, my name is Ignacio Martin Loeches, and I am one of the consultants in ICU in Genesis. So um, one of the questions uh, that uh, has uh, been on the table in, in organ donation is about how do we do the process? Um, in my role as a clinical lead in organ donation for Dublin Midlands, um, is part of the education uh, something that we try to implement when we have patients that they might be potentials for organ donation? And one of the tools um, that I consider that could be very useful is to be uh, systematic. In the same way that in critical care, we are systematic in our approach to the patients and is uh, our, our signature when we are assessing a patient to be systematic, we should do the same for organ donation. So, and this is something that um, with a group of colleagues uh, we published uh, a few years ago uh, in Intensive Care Medicine, that is the official journal of the European Society of Intensive Care, uh, that is the ABC of organ donation. It's, a, it's, a, it's an algorithm that is trying to help the physicians um, and nurses to follow this process. So I'm going to explain a little bit further what this uh, means. So the letter A is about etiology. When we are having a patient in intensive care, independently if he's going to become an organ donor or not, we need to know uh, the cause of death. This is uh, fundamental, especially for organ donation. We cannot go for the organ donation if we don't have the etiology of the death. So number one is starting to understand why the patient has developed this uh, neurological damage. The B is about brain stem death or brain death. So this is something that um, is trying to help and again to be systematic. However, I would like to um, use this podcast to, to maybe uh, clarify some issues because um, Sometimes we are considering that we have to use a, a checklist. Uh, we know that there are several checklists that you can find in Internet. Uh, you have other checklists that they are included in our electronic uh, system. But the checklist function is as all checklists as an aid memory to facilitate a cognitive offload to perform this particular test. However, the death is a clinical diagnosis. So we need to try to get all the points in order to diagnose. So it's, it's perfectly acceptable or normal practice for intensive care units to choose to use either checklist or not and to use an electronic version of the checklist or not. The last is C that is contraindications. And I think that this is probably the most important part of this uh, 
very short uh, podcast. Uh, the C means contraindication, but in the way that we should not jump to the C before doing the A and the B. In other words, in many occasions, we are uh, looking after patients that they might have a devastating brain injury. Uh, and this patient might have some issues related to potential contraindications for organ donation. One of the commonest issues is the age. And in many occasions when we see or when we assess a patient with a devastating brain injury, with imagine over 70 years of age, we would acknowledge that this patient is not going to be a candidate for organ donation. However, this is something that it should not be done. We need to start again from the etiology. We need to continue with the brain death test and finally the contraindication, but not the other way around. And I'm going to put an example. This is something that has happened in the past and it happens from time to time. And it's um, human nature that you are going to uh, look after a patient that imagine that has had um, uh, intracerebral bleeding, very massive bleeding that is not compatible with life. We have tried to consider any intervention, but obviously uh, is futile. And then we see that this patient is 70 years of age. So it's very likely that we are going to say, oh, probably this patient is not going to be for organ donation. Definitely is not going to be a good organ donor for some organs. So due to the age, he's going to be excluded from some organs such as heart and lungs. But for other organs such as liver or kidneys, it could be a perfect candidate. And this is something that has happened recently in our unit. So we had, uh, uh, unfortunately, a patient that uh, suffer uh, a devastating brain injury. So the patient was 70 years old. And then we said, let's go to the ABC. So we got the etiology, we performed the brain stem test, and then we went to the H. And then when what we did was to put this in place with Organ Donation Transplant Ireland in order to offer to other teams. Unfortunately, uh, kidneys were not suitable because this patient was for a long-term um, course of, uh, of treatment of antihypertensives. Uh, so that was a formal contraindication for that team. Uh, but the liver was taken and the liver was, um, was uh, transplanted to, to a patient. So this patient is now living with that liver from a patient that is over 70 years of age. Another important matter when we consider the age uh, is um, something that, you know, that is true that the, the age mandates a lot in the, in the quality of the organs. It's, it's not surprising that the kidneys in a patient with 30 or 40 years of age are going to be much better than patients uh, that they have uh, 60 or 70 years of age. However, there is another part in this story that is the recipient. Obviously, if you uh, get uh, the kidneys of a young patient and this 
kidneys are going to be transplanted to a, to a patient that is young, this patient is going to take a quality of life that is going to be very good for a long time. So that patient, for instance, is not going to require dialysis for a long time. However, when we transplant the kidneys of a much older donor to a much older recipient, this patient is also going to benefit for a good quality of life. And even this quality of life is going to be in the same uh, degree of freedom from being on the uh, dialysis or having all the complications. So I think that this is the reason that in this very short um, podcast, uh, I wanted just to, to summarize um, this process of being systematic in organ donation and look at the ABC in organ donation. So thank you very much for your attention and I hope to see you all in the unit. So today we're going to talk about organ donation. So we have Nikki Phillips with us and Nikki is the organ donation nurse manager. So welcome Nikki and thanks for joining us today. So Nikki, can you just tell us a little bit about your role within the ICU in relation to organ donation? Absolutely. So um, along with Ignacio, we both cover the Dublin Midlands Hospital Group and we're based in St. James's Hospital. So one of our main roles is that we do provide education to all the staff in the intensive care units. So we do this by delivering, say, on-site on training. Uh, we present in courses such as the foundation course and postgraduate uh, diploma. But also we do host uh, an annual study, study day or a conference day in organ donation. So the main goal is that we keep the unit updated on, say, changes in practice and if there's any new guidelines. So that's one of our roles. Um, also, just say a unit has any concerns or issues in relation, say, to investigations, brainstem testing or even donor maintenance. So Ignacio and I would be, I suppose, the expert resource for the unit and can actually contact us uh, directly at any stage that we will support the unit during the organ donation process. Um, then, unfortunately for some families we do lose, who do lose loved ones in the intensive care unit, um, so just say if patients have been diagnosed with brainstem stem death or it's on the end of a life pathway, it is our role to identify potential donors and offer these family the option for organ donation. And the NICE guidelines does say that organ donation should be considered as the usual part of end-of-life planning. So it's about us incorporating the organ donation into the end-of-life planning. And like we do build such a rapport with the family, um, like we provide education on the process of organ donation. And this is just to ensure that they have all the relevant information to assist with making a decision on organ donation that is right for their loved ones and right for their family. Okay. So Nikki, you mentioned they're really about educating families on organ donation. So when do you think is the appropriate time really to approach the families to talk about donation? Yeah, so unfortunately, like for some families um, in the unit, that we do, that they will receive uh, devastating news of their loved ones. 
Um, again, they could be on the end of life pathway or say they've been diagnosed with brainstem death. So firstly, it is actually very important that the family are given the time to actually come to terms with the events that have occurred, such as like processing the devastating news. And it's actually only after this period of time that we actually approach the family and discuss those options. So th the first option is to continue the end of life pathway. And then the second option is the possibility of their loved one becoming an organ donor. So it's only at this stage we kind of provide the necessary information. Um, say like what organs can be retrieved because some families may not think um, say eyes they kind of say oh uh, we don't want our eyes and you know we don't do this process over in Ireland so it's important that they know what organs could be offered and also say the timing of the event so we do give that information first and then we do encourage the families just to take time to discuss among themselves um, their decision um, and then what I found is on the unit that a lot of staff have approached me and voiced their concerns that are we not um, putting a burden them with this information of say organ donation that like is it causing any further distress um, and it is a thing that comes up quite a lot but there is a lot of research in that area and that most families um, have felt there was actually no distress at the request for organ donation however okay. What has been highlighted is that there has been, say, negative res responses reflected uh, of the lack of information or they haven't been given enough time. Right. So it is important that we do give them that time and that I suppose that when we're in the family meeting that whatever decision that they make, that we support a decision mm. if it's mm. yes or if it's a no. And I suppose the end part of it is that some families that they may find comfort in organ donation that something positive like may come out of this devastating tragedy. Okay. I think maybe just my experience has been that nurses are often afraid to they don't want to cause that further distress to mm. families and I feel like sometimes they feel they don't have the relevant information to give to the family so they're very reluctant to bring it up but what would you say to a nurse maybe who feels like she has that good rapport with a family and the family actually ask her about organ donation maybe um, I suppose what how would you advise our nurses to, to deal with that situation yeah so that has happened a few times where families do bring up organ donation and it's fine for nurses to speak about um, what we do recommend is that we say uh, thank you for bringing it up um, however we still have to do certain tests first before we look at the route of organ donation so it's important that we can discuss it if you want more information you can always contact me but it is, it's okay to talk about it as well and if they've built that that's why the families felt that's the, they were able to communicate but it's just that to make sure like if there's tests have to be done first they're carried out and then we look down the route of organ donation so that's okay then great stuff thanks Nikki um, the other question I have is at present we have the opt-out in opt-in model for consent to organ donation and I hear the government are planning to change to soft opt-out model could you explain the difference yeah exactly so currently in Ireland we do have the opt-in model so this is like a voluntary donation so some families may not be aware of the loved one's wishes um, so that's when families may notice okay have they got say do you know the donor cards um, their driver license mm. the, the code is 115 at the back and then there's also an e-card which is an app on your phone so families are maybe rushing around like oh where where can I find these I suppose the one thing you have to take from this those cards and driver license and the app is that um, 
these are only for someone's wishes to donate. This is not consent, and that's important to remember. And mm. um, that Nexokin has the decision to consent to loved ones for organ donation. So we do always encourage, you know, everyone to have that discussion in your family. And look, at it, it's it's a very hard. Uh, discussion to have because yeah. you don't want to think of your own death and you don't want to be thinking of your family's death but like unless we have that conversation you know we just don't know but in regards to the opt-out that um that is being it's been changing um it's to a soft opt-out so what this means is that everybody would be considered as willing to donate their organs unless they have formally opt-out however What's really important to know about this is with the soft opt-out, the next of kin still is required for consent. So organ donation will not proceed unless next of kin is consent, does consent. So I'm not too sure if people know this and mm. that's the reason we have the soft opt-out. And again, it's about having that conversation because some people may change their mind as well without changing on the register. So it is important that we do have that discussion. It's not a nice discussion, but it's something we could, um, you have to, you might have to do in the future. Great, brilliant. And where can we find all that information on organ donation? Oh yes, yeah. so here in the unit we do have an organ donation box so that has um, all the blood bottles and guidelines. But uh, we do have a lot of the information on the internet, so it's under the ICU departments, clinical reference, and there's a section on organ donation. Again, we have on LearnPath, there is a section under organ donation link nurse, and it has presentations and it has videos. Um, and then if you are, say, at home and you want to read anything mm -hmm. or in a room, there's also uh, the website, which is the intensivecare.ie, and this is the Intensive Care Society of Ireland, of Ireland and that has all your guidelines there. So um, that's where we find all the information. And again, there's myself and Ignacio if you need any further information. Okay, and just remind us where we can find your information, Nikki, for contacting you again. So it's at the box, and we can also find you through Switch as well. So on the box, you have all our information, our names, our emails, and that's where you find our guests through Switch. Our numbers are there. Okay, that's great. Thanks very much, Nikki, for joining us. Hi, Emily here, and welcome back to Critical Conversations. I have Gina O'Reilly from Organ Donation Transplant Island joining us. Thank you, Jean, for joining us on the podcast. Um, we're just going to have a little chat to you about your role within um, organ donation. Um, can you tell us about the ODTI team? Yes, thank you very much, and thanks for the invitation um, to partake in this podcast. Um, ODTI um, was set up um, in 2015 in line with EU legislation, and it's managed under the acute hospital division within the HSE. So our team consists of a number of people, including our director of services and deputies. We have a team of donor coordinators who manage and oversee organ donation process. Um, the, we currently have about eight donor coordinators who are based in Dublin and one of our main roles is to coordinate and facilitate organ donation nationally and um, providing a year-round 24-7 service. Um, our team also include um, a Chief Operations Officer, an Administration Team and a Quality Department, which are all essential parts really of the organisation. The wider ODTI team also include a number of clinical leads and organ donor nurse managers who are based in the hospital groups and provide education within the ICUs. As you know, Nikki is the ODNM based here in James's. So that's kind of really roughly a summary of the team. Okay, thank you. 
Uh, can you talk us through your role then when you receive a call from an ICU? Um, sure. Yeah, we, um, as you know, we run a national 24-7 phone line and we can get a call at any time from staff within the ICU. And just to say, we welcome all calls, including those looking for advice in relation to um, if a patient is a potential um, suitable recipient or suitable donor for organ donation. Um, when the call comes in from ICU, if the ICU team have identified a potential donor and spoken to the family and gained verbal consent, we'll then get the initial referral call from the ICU themselves. When that call comes through, we um, will ask the staff for a, a number of questions in relation to the patient's current and past medical history. We look at um, the cause of death um, as well and look for a number of um, different tests to try and uh, facilitate the donation process. We will also, uh, one of the things we do look at, um, which is quite important, is the blood group, the weight and the height. Um, the reason why the height is particularly important is um, the height has to be measured um, in a specific way so that um, the donation can proceed at that stage. So there is an extensive amount of information that we get from the nurses um, on the phone call, and that's just to make the, the donation um, and the transplantation as safely as possible. So we gather all that information, then we will go to the transplant centres with that information, and they will make a decision based on a number of factors, including who's on the waiting list, um, priority of who's um, sickest, and looking at the donor's medical and social history um, and, and making a decision based on that. As a national organisation as well, if, for example, um, the, the transplant centres in this country don't have suitable recipients, we will offer the organs on to the UK and Eurotransplant as well. So that's really to try and facilitate the donor and family's wishes as much as possible and to try and help as many people as possible. So there's lots of... Um, lots of things going on in the background um, as well while them calls are being, um, being taken care of. When we then get, if we get a transplant centre that has accepted an organ for potential transplant, we will ring the ICU back and get them to take blood samples that you have available on the unit. These blood samples are then sent to, um, to labs in Dublin and where they look at various results, including testing, including virology, and they will cross match the recipient and donor blood. So that's trying to find the safest match as possible for the recipients. So the whole process itself takes, takes a number of hours. Um, and I suppose we're very conscious of the fact that ICUs are busy and families have been there a while. So it is, you know, it can be... Um, a tough process but it, it's usually facilitated quite well and um, when as that process is going on and in the background then we're uh, liaising with the transplant centres so we look for chest x-ray and um, echoes various tests and we'll use as much of the information as possible that is available in the ICU to help make the safest decision possible. We also look for a COVID assessment questionnaire and an algorithm, and again, that's just in line with, I suppose, new recommendations with the with the recent with the pandemic. Um, when all that is kind of put into place and we have a plan um, to proceed, we'll then travel to the ICU. So we, as I said, we do cover nationally, and we will go to any ICU in the country. We'll travel to the ICUs and meet with the staff and review all of the notes that we had been, the information that we've been given. 
one of our main roles then obviously is to meet the family and try and support them through this process. So we sit down with the family members, however many is there, sometimes there can be extended family members, and we will complete a health and lifestyle questionnaire and a consent process. And again, we look to try and find as much information as possible to help make it as safe as possible for the transplants to proceed and generally families are very are okay with these questions it can be some sensitive questions which can be difficult but a lot of people when we explain that a lot of people understand understand that process so again it's about supporting them through it giving them the information that's needed for it and and talking them through the process so we'll always give them the opportunity to take that information on board if there's something that they weren't previously aware of so we try and support them as much as possible throughout the process okay so how does your role then extend with the donor families following the transplant then would you have much to do with them after that has happened yeah sure so part of our role obviously when we meet the family then after and have consent we were there throughout the whole process during the theater process and the retrieval process so we are there for that whole um experience so from when we meet the family we are pretty much with the donor throughout that whole process and i think sometimes that can be nice for families to have met us in person and realize that you know we're with their their loved one the whole way through it so we keep them informed and again each family is individual so we will talk to the family see what what suits their needs and we will generally follow up with the family with a phone call the next day giving them an outcome of the operation and one of the things we would always say to families as well is so we match suitable recipients for their loved ones organs but there's there's always a very small chance that when the operation begins that the operation mightn't go as planned so we may find certain findings that nobody had expected and um, that's always a small chance but again it's something that we would inform our families with so they have they have a knowledge of what potential could happen so we'll give them an update and the following morning with what's happened during the procedure we then will follow up with them in about four to six weeks again depending on the family's needs if they need us to call sooner we will um, and we try and support the family um, through that and we give them an update on how the recipients are doing one of the things we are very clear of with our families is that our recipients need to re remain anonymous. So there is that um, anonymity that we need to protect for both donor families and recipients. And that's something that um, that we make everyone aware of. So we'll give them some basic information, but that is that is limited um, as to what we can give them. But we will try and support them as, as much as we can and signpost them then to even supports if needed. Okay. And is there any communication then between the donor and the recipient then um, any correspondence between the two? Yeah, sure. So there there can be some um, correspondence. So some recipients uh, like to write to say thank you for this gift of life that the family have given, and we will facilitate the, um, the that information being sent. Now again, we make it aware that it is uh, anonymized and there is no identifiable information passed on. So everything that is um, received into ODTI so the letters are, are reviewed and read by ourselves um, confidentially to make sure that that information is okay to pass on and we will pass on information so we will pass letters from 
recipient to donor families and again that's if they wish so some families would request that no information is sent so again it's whatever the family needs we will support the, their decision and we will facilitate um correspondence between the donor and recipient families so yeah that's really Really? It's always lovely for them to get that correspondence to, to say thanks. But again, for those families that don't receive letters, you know, I suppose it's one of our jobs as well is to thank the donor families on their behalf, because not everyone is able to write that letter. It can be very difficult for a recipient to say thank you because it doesn't seem like enough words. Not for everybody, yeah. Um, mm. So I suppose the last 18 months has been very challenging for everybody in ICU, outside of ICU. And I'm just wondering how has the COVID, how has COVID impacted on the on the organ donation service that you're providing? Yeah, sure. And I suppose like everyone in the beginning of the pandemic, it, there was a lot of unknowns and, uh, you know, it, it was uh, difficult and challenging for, for everyone. Um, we got together as a service and I suppose a lot of our guidelines and recommendations come from within um, your, the European guidelines. So we looked to them for advice and we gathered um, an advisory group that met quite regularly throughout that initial initial phases. And, um, you know, I suppose like everything in the initial phases, the, there was a re reduction in organ donation. But thankfully now with, you know, with the introduction of a COVID assessment and an algorithm and uh, again, like everything with more knowledge and time, um, we're hoping that our numbers will, you know, will pick up again. Okay. Um, and finally, I guess, um, how does your role extend um, outside of the hospital setting? Um, I know you're not based in the hospital, but um, do you have a, um, another role, I guess, outside of the, the acute setting? Yeah, sure. I suppose, like, you know, there, it's a very, 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 very varied role. Um, and it would um, include, you know, we, we raise awareness for organ donation. We provide um, education to universities and we work with our, our ODNMs and CLODs to, pr to provide education and support. And we really appreciate you coming to talk to us on behalf of Organ Donation Transplant Ireland. We hope you enjoyed that episode from Critical Conversations. Thanks to our three experts in the field of organ donation for agreeing to speak to us on our podcast. As always, please like or subscribe our podcast on whatever platform you listen. And please leave us some feedback at ICU education team at stjames.ie. Thanks again to our speakers, our listeners, and we look forward to talking to you soon on Critical Conversations. Thank you.